It is so great to worship with you live today. Uh, welcome you all. And those of you joining uh, live stream, we welcome you. We, uh, this is our second Sunday doing live stream of our Sunday services rather than a pre-produced uh, service like we have been doing the past year. More and more of you are gathering together, and it's just great to have you. But whether live or on stream, uh, great to have you here with us. Uh, and we had amazing prayer and worship night last Sunday night, and God's presence was here. Thank you for those of you who came to pray in person and those of you who joined us online as well. We're a part of a, a wonderful family. We believe we're not just reopening post-COVID, but we're reawakening in terms of God's purposes for us. Yeah. We are right now in a series, uh, The Case for Truth, and last week and today we're dealing with um, a subject that, that probably is differentiating the church from the culture more than any other single subject. We wanted to look at God's word concerning sexuality. To, to speak for us this morning, uh, I'm so grateful to have my friends Joe and Renee Dallas with us. Uh, I was their pastor, actually, back in, in the 1990s when I was pastoring a wonderful church in, in Southern California that they are still a part of. In fact, Joe's on the board of that church. Renee was on the board of that church, uh, Newport Mesa Church, and it is a wonderful place. We developed a friendship, but already Joe, in his story, his testimony that you hear this morning was already um, elevating his voice nationally to address the issues of homosexuality and all of the related issues around sexuality. I've come to trust uh, Joe's heart, his ability to balance compassion with conviction like, like no one else I know. And um, he is going to come today uh, and, and be speaking to us. And then again at 6.45 Wednesday night, he'll be doing a seminar in the chapel for us. And uh, we just invite you to take advantage of, of him being with us in every way you can. He right now, um, of course, is still writing books. You'll see his book table at the back, uh, speaking of homosexuality, when homosexuality comes home, um, and a brand new book, uh, Christians in a Cancel Culture, that you can pre-order. It's going to be published in August. And uh, Joe is also working, one of the reasons he's in town this week is that he's working with the Assemblies of God in developing a fairly new ministry called ReStory, which is to resource Assemblies of God pastors and uh, churches uh, to address these complicated issues and, and amazingly important issues, but with Christ's character and compassion. So, Renee, I'd like you to stand too, but let's welcome uh, Joe Dallas as he comes and brings God's word to us. Thank you. Good morning. Being here means a lot to my wife and I. As Dr. Bradford mentioned, your pastor was our pastor, a terrific shepherd and a very good dear friend over the years through a lot of my own ups and downs in my work and in my life. And so I am especially honored to be in his church I'm also very happy to be able to talk to you in the month of June, because as you know, June is Pride Month. And on a worldwide basis, there are women and men stepping forward, declaring their pride in their identities as lesbian women or gay men or transgendered people. 
and they are inviting the world to celebrate that pride with them. And in many ways, I am sympathetic because I was one of those millions who adopted an identity as an openly gay man and who marched in the parades and promoted very aggressively the idea that homosexuality is something which should be embraced. I did indeed take pride and boasted in that part of my identity, and I still boast. The content of my boasting has changed over the decades. I take a cue now from Jeremiah 9.24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. So I, I still have the same big mouth I always did, but the message has obviously morphed somewhat. So I do appreciate the chance to share some of my own story with you. I love the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 107:2, speaking about God's redemptive uh, action in our own lives. When he said, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So when we boast about God's work in us, we are saying so. This is my so. It's got a dark side. As in, I was so messed up. My life became so weird. And then there is a light side. But God is so good. This redeemed of the Lord says so. It is a wonderful thing to be able to say, especially today, because there is indeed another side to Pride Month. There will always be women and men who realize their sexuality tends them towards the same sex. But then there will always be women and men who have that realization accompanied by another realization. This is not what my creator intended for me. Paul referred to this as long ago as around AD 53 when he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church. And he said, don't kid yourself, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor prostitutes, nor drunkards, nor idolaters, nor the greedy, nor homosexuals, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were past tense. Some of you. He was acknowledging even then that some of the redeemed of the Lord who were saying so had in fact been embracing this in their own lives. That has always been true. It will always be true. As long as there is a gospel, there will be people responding to the gospel. As long as there are people responding to the gospel, some of those people will be lesbian, gay, or transgendered. And as long as there are lesbian, gay, or transgendered people, they, like all people, will find themselves interrupted by God. And I love that concept, interruption. To me, the Old and New Testaments are an ongoing saga of God interrupting humanity. We often talk about Jehovah's attributes. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider, I happen to like that one. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. I like to talk about Jehovah interrupt us. 
the God who interrupts. That's why one of my favorite short phrases in all of Scripture is, but God. And you notice how often that gets interjected just when everything looks like it couldn't get worse, but God. I'd like to talk about my own but God. It began in 1971 when I was a 16-year-old junior in high school. And by that time in my life, unfortunately, having been routinely molested by a number of men as a boy, growing up terribly confused, then realizing my sexual confusion was leading me towards interactions with grown men, I had begun seeing adult men for secret sexual liaisons. Of course, at that time, 1971, you could get yourself killed if you declared yourself openly gay. So this was a secret part of my life. On the one hand, I felt such a discomfort with that that I was on a regular basis dosing myself with LSD and marijuana and cocaine. But on the other hand, I was finding it oddly liberating to say, this is who I am. I am gay. I embrace this. I am determined not to hate myself for this any longer. And in that conflict, part of me saying no, part of me saying yes, I met a lovely classmate who asked me to a backwards dance. That's one of those dances where the girls ask the guys. And she was one of our homecoming princesses, a beautiful young lady, and I was very flattered and delighted to accept. We went out, had a wonderful time. I dropped her off and I said, you know, I would love to see you again. And she said, that's great because I'd like to take you to church. <laughs> and I said, church which I didn't know much about, but I was pretty sure that's the place where you went if you were either very old or very ugly, one of the two. <laughs> and here's this babe asking me to church, so that alone intrigued me. I said, okay, why not? That Sunday, we drove from my hometown, Long Beach, California, out to Costa Mesa, California, to this little place called Calvary Chapel, a tiny church which was bursting at the seams with scores of newly born-again hippies who were on fire and not at all shy about talking about it. And that was the epicenter at the time of what we've come to refer to as the Jesus Movement when millions of young people were being brought into the kingdom. And to walk into Calvary Chapel, pastored by, I believe, one of our greatest Bible teachers in modern history, Chuck Smith, to walk into that place was to feel something tangible. As a non-believer who knew nothing about the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, I felt the presence of all three. I didn't know what it was, but it was like a wall of something that hit me. And that was the first time I ever heard the gospel clearly presented, and the impact was almost unbearable. I came under conviction that would last for weeks because I realized Yes, the promises of Christ, they sound wonderful, but I also had heard about the claims of Christ. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He who will not do that is not worthy of me. And I thought, well, now wait a minute. The heaven business I love, this cross business sounds a little tricky because I knew what it was gonna require. I was just now embracing being a gay man and now here comes this conviction that I'm going to take up my cross and say no to that. And after going back and forth on it, finally, 
In the middle of the week at school, I snuck off school grounds, went to a little park across the street, and knelt under a tree and said, yes. Yes, I will receive your grace. I want to be born again. Please forgive me and take me. And oh, what a time that was. And it was, as Dickens would say, the best of times and the worst of times. The best of times in that I became one of those noisy hippies carrying a yellow pages-sized Bible around and about five ichthuses around his neck and 20 bumper stickers to hold my car together saying, you gotta repent and be saved. I was on fire, I was in church six nights a week. I could not get enough of Bible study and worship and afterglow services where we prayed in the spirit and received the power of God. I was on fire. But there was a problem. And I say this because I know, I know to this day there are many people in the church who are in the same position I was in. I had been born again, I had been filled with the Spirit, I loved the Lord, but I had temptations. And I thought the presence of those temptations meant there was something foundationally wrong with me. And I felt that especially because, let's face it, in 1971, nobody was doing what we're doing this morning. Nobody was talking about this openly within the church. You simply did not hear testimonies of people who had walked away from this sin because this was the sin that was not mentioned in polite company, much less within the congregation. And while I heard people testifying about overcoming drug abuse, cultic experiences, violent backgrounds. I never heard a story of somebody dealing with this, which only reinforced my idea that, oh, darn it, I'm still a freak. I'm still an abomination. I still don't fit in. I'm still on the outside. If these people knew what temptations I have, not behaviors, I had repented and I was living a sanctified life. I in no way gave in to the temptations towards homosexuality, but I thought the presence of those temptations was an indicator that I was fundamentally defective. I had a misunderstanding of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, which Paul said is a guarantee, Galatians 5.17. The spirit struggles against the flesh, the flesh wars against the spirit, and these two are contrary to each other. Everybody's got their own struggle. That's the reality of being a born-again creature in a very unborn-again environment dealing with the old man. But at that time, I simply thought, because those tendencies are so heinous, if I was truly a holy man, I would never experience such temptations. And because I kept that a secret, I think you know where this is going. The secret temptation you refuse to bring to light eventually becomes the secret sin you begin to make peace with, which eventually becomes the bondage which derails your life. And by 1978, the derailing happened when I said very plainly to myself and to God, I am tired. I wanted all these feelings to go away. I'm mad at you for not making them all go away. I'm mad at the church for not understanding people who have these particular temptations. I'm mad at, well, I mean, I was mad at everybody but President Nixon and I wasn't crazy about him either. <laughs> so I said something very dangerous to say, I will. 
and you know the Luciferian roots of that. I will become like God. I will ascend to the Most High. I basically said I will. Now I understand better than ever why the scripture tells us that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Because in that moment I said, I give myself permission. I am tired of trying to resist these feelings. I know that they are wrong. And you know what? I don't care anymore. I will give myself permission to indulge. And that was the day I stepped into an adult bookstore to view pornography, which I had not seen since I was a boy. And from there, it was all downhill. As one decision, I will, led to another, I will, which led to another, I will, which finally landed me in a gay bar, night after night, drinking excessively, engaging in promiscuity. I had been a struggler. A struggler in the church is someone who has a secret temptation and does not want to bring that temptation to light. And we have many of those who are on the cusp of making a decision like I did. But then I morphed from being a struggler to being what I call moderate, not in my lifestyle, but in my agenda. And there are many people, lesbian and gay women, who are what I would call moderate in this sense. Most of them do not have a political agenda they want to ram down our throats. Most of them are not aggressive. Most of them are not hostile to the church. And I say that because so often the media representation is of the angry homosexual. And yet, I think some of you can verify this yourself. If you have a gay or lesbian friend or loved one or co-worker, you realize that in most cases, these are people who want what most of us want, to pay the bills, to mow the lawn, to enjoy an occasional football game, to basically get by. And so as such a person, I embraced a gay identity. I worked hard to tell myself, this is all right with me, even if it's not all right with God, which lasted for about a year. And then the conflict really surfaced when I realized, and yet, I miss my fellowship of the church. I miss abiding in Christ. I miss the communion of the Holy Spirit. Now, there was enough rebellion in me to hang on to my sin. There was enough light in me to yearn for holiness again and to walk with Christ. What to do? And that's when someone came along, a gay friend of mine, who said, I know a church where you can be both, where you can be openly gay and openly Christian, and they will teach you how to reread the Bible in a way to show there is no conflict between the two. And I thought, now this is an answer to prayer. A pro-gay interpretation of the Bible, the very document inspired by God, which I thought was testifying against me, these people have found a way to make it in harmony with their life. I gotta hear this, and that was when I stepped into the local congregation of the Metropolitan Community Church. In 1978, that was about the only game in town if you were looking for a place which preached a pro-gay interpretation of the Bible, which of course has become commonly accepted in many denominations and many churches today, even among many people who identify themselves as openly evangelical. And walking into that church and hearing the pro-gay interpretation of scripture, on the one hand I thought, yes, this is answered prayer. On the other hand, I thought, this is kind of sloppy theology, and yet 
even if it's wrong, is it so terribly wrong? I mean, if I embrace this and identify myself as a gay Christian, isn't that a step in the right direction? I'll stop my promiscuity. I'll stop my excessive drinking. I'll clean my act up, and I'll live as a gay Christian man, responsible and moderate in his lifestyle, and still proclaiming Jesus Christ. Please, God, let this be possible. And with that prayer on my lips, I stepped forward into communion that Sunday and began identifying myself as what I call now religious. There are gays who are strugglers within the church. There are those who are moderate. And then there are those who are religious and that they will tell you, I'm not just gay or lesbian. I'm gay or lesbian. And I'm a Bible-believing Christian. In embracing the pro-gay theology and in embracing the basic tenets of the church, I found out something fascinating as I got to know the people there. They were all like me. There wasn't one person in that church I ever met all the years I was there who was born again in that church. We were all formers. Former Calvary Chapel, former Assembly of God, former Foursquare, former Southern Baptist, former Lutheran. My goodness, we shared the same experience. They had been born again in a Bible-believing church. They wrestled with homosexuality. They were afraid to say anything about their struggle. They finally gave in to the struggle and identified themselves as gay and tried to live it out and weren't comfortable with it and heard there was a place where you could be both gay and Christian, and that's what brought them there. That's what brought me there. That's what brought us together, and there was solidarity there. Oh, my gosh, was there solidarity. So much so that eventually I joined the staff of the church and I began preaching a pro-gay theological message. I began teaching Bible studies. I was active with the church. And I thought, finally, I have landed at a place of peace. I am no longer denying my sexuality. I am no longer denying my Christianity. It has all come together. Thank you, Lord. But something interesting was happening in the midst of all that. I was embracing something that was doctrinally satisfying to me, but also very dangerous. And I use the word dangerous because I am afraid that a lot has changed since I first embraced that interpretation of the Bible. Back in 1978, it was relatively unknown. In 2021, it's becoming increasingly common. And there are many believers, many church leaders even, who are saying that perhaps this issue what the Bible does or does not say about homosexuality is one of those secondary issues we can agree to disagree on but still be in fellowship with each other over. And there are such issues, aren't there? I mean, there are some doctrinal matters we can agree to disagree on and it doesn't break our communion. Good night, somebody's right about the rapture of the church. Wherever you have landed, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, somebody's wrong, somebody's right, but I can't imagine us breaking fellowship over that. Somebody's right about eternal security. I can't imagine us refusing communion with each other over that. Sexuality is another matter. Sexual sin is aggressively condemned in 21 out of all of the New Testament books. The first case of recorded church discipline occurred over a sexual sin within the congregation. And you'll remember Paul was so put out with the Corinthian church when he said, there's sexual sin in your midst and you're actually proud of it. 
the sexual union between man and wife, my gosh, in the Old Testament, that's a type of God's relationship to his people. In the New Testament, that's a type of Christ's relationship to his church. You don't mess with types. This is not a secondary issue. This is a primary issue. In a pluralistic culture, yes, there's room to agree to disagree. Within the body of Christ, no. There is no room for diversity on something as basic as the definition of marriage and family. On this point, we dare not compromise. I had embraced a serious error, but the peace I was feeling was soon evolving into something different. I was beginning to feel angry. There's a good reason for that. You may have encountered lesbians or gays or transgenders who seem very, very angry, and I'm not going to try to read somebody else's mind. I will only tell you what was going on in my own mind and in my own soul. I had embraced this. I wanted to believe it was true, but there was a still small voice telling me it wasn't. My own conscience, my own foundation in the Word of God, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit were all conspiring together to tell me, no, Joe, you're embracing a lie. Now, you know what happens when your conscience and or the conviction of the Holy Spirit or both are testifying against something in your life. Either you're going to listen to that voice and you're going to adjust your life accordingly, or you're going to try to stomp that darn thing out. Now, when my conscience is telling me something that I don't want to hear and I decide, no, I'm not going to listen to that, then if you come along and tell me something that is in harmony with what my conscience is telling me, I'm going to be like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear you. And if you keep saying that, you become my enemy. The body of Christ became my enemy. Because by the late 1970s, many leaders of the body of Christ were becoming very vocal about homosexuality. In response to the growing vocalness of the gay rights movement, many vocal leaders within the body of Christ were saying, this is not God's will. I didn't want to hear that. And the more I heard it, the madder I got. And the madder I got, the more I decided, I don't want to just coexist with these people. I want to shut them up. And that's when I morphed from being religious to militant. Now, a gay militant is someone with a twofold agenda, the normalization of homosexuality and the silencing of anyone who objects to that normalization. I no longer believed just in seeking to normalize homosexuality in the culture. I, like many others, wanted to stamp out the voice of anybody who disagreed with that normalization. And I found a new drug when I made that decision. Now, I had given up drugs when I was a kid. When I was first born again, I stopped using dope. And even at my worst, I never relapsed back into using drugs, but I found a whole new one that could be generated within me. Rage. Getting angry. Getting angry over what I saw as an injustice. Getting angry over people I believed to be the oppressors. And man, there is nothing like the adrenaline rush you get when you feel you have a holy cause. They are the enemy. We are the righteous. And we go to battle with them. And in that, I felt so pumped and so powerful that when I look at the behavior of people throwing public tantrums and burning down buildings and getting in people's faces, 
I abhor it, but I get it. It feels darn good. And like any drug, it is also addictive. I became addicted to gay militancy. I felt so powerful debating people on college campuses and marching in parades and getting in people's faces about that and all of the evangelical fervor I had applied to preaching the gospel when I was a kid, I now applied to converting the culture and the church to a pro-gay position that was my righteous cause. And I loved it. Except, <laughs> again, but God because there was something still testifying against me even in the midst of that. Occasionally, people who had known me when I was part of the Bible-believing church would run into me in the supermarket, or they'd call me up and they'd say, Joe, I hear you've gone gay. I hear you're with a gay church. I hear you are really aggressive about it. What happened to you, man? I knew you when you were such a Christ-centered guy, and you knew the Word of God. How are you justifying this? And like anyone who was well indoctrinated, I had all my answers ready. And I could rattle them off and look so calm and so convinced and end the conversation and go home and get drunk to kill the anxiety I was feeling because I knew I am being affected by what these people say, but I dare not let them know because that would be a concession. I have to be right, because if I'm not right about this, what is my life built on? The whole foundation is gonna crumble, no, no, no. I have to be right, I have to be right, except as more and more time went by, I began to question how right I really was until early in January of 1984 when the conviction of the Holy Spirit was becoming overwhelming at a time when, by all reasonable causes, it shouldn't have been. I mean, my life was going very well, good job, wonderful apartment, good social life. I was in the best physical shape I'd ever been in. I was in so many ways a happy man who seemed to have so much together as my openly gay, proud, religious self would tell you, and yet I'd wake up in the middle of the night wondering, are you kidding yourself? And at work, sometimes I'd feel like I'm about to cry. And that's when a question started to formulate very deep in my gut. Are you kidding yourself? Are you really sure this is what you believe? Or is this what you want to believe? And finally, in January of 1984, one night I got home from a workout at the gym, sat down in front of the TV. I saw an old friend of mine on a Christian TV show who was testifying about his own secret struggle with alcoholism. And he said, I never gave the church a chance. I kept it hidden, and that's why it overtook me. And I thought, okay, Joe, let's be honest. Did you ever give the church a chance? No, I didn't. Way back then, I had decided the church will never understand this temptation I have. They'll think I'm a freak. They'll reject me. And if I decide that they'll reject me, that will justify my leaving the church. Because I had never said to any of my Christian friends at the time, this is a temptation I have. Will you please pray with me? Because I don't want to give in to it. Oh, if only I had done that. What a different course my life would have taken. Today, if only so many women and men would do that, what a different course their lives would take. And that was when I realized, okay, it's time to get honest. 
And that's when I turned out all the lights in my apartment and I knelt down and I said, Lord, I am ready to admit it. If I have been wrong, I want to know that I've been wrong. And that was the night I became repentant. The repentant individual struggling with same-sex desires is the person who comes into the church saying, I do have these desires. I'm not going to keep it a secret. I know it will be a sin if I yield to them. I want to grow in Christ, so what do I do now? That was the question I posed to the church when I repented, relocated, and got into good Bible-believing fellowship because I knew I can't do it the way I did it before. I can't pretend that these feelings are not a part of what I deal with. And as I began making friends in the church, a whole new experience for me, by the way, making honest, authentic friendships, the guys in my church took me in and said, yeah, we want you. Worship with us. Join our choir. Join our softball team. Play with us. Be a fellow disciple with us. Be a part of our lives. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a part of their lives, I think they need to know where I've been because that was a pretty big part of my history. And so I could spill it all out with them. This is where I've been. I lived as an openly gay man. I wrestled with these feelings. I don't know what to do about it. And you know what they did, the redeemed of the Lord? They said, so? <laughs> they said, gee, you seem to be making a big deal out of this. You have feelings you don't want to have. Wow, Joe, we can't imagine what that's like. <laughs> you have wayward desires. Well, you must be from another planet. They said, what do you think we all deal with? And that's when it occurred to me, of course, Every believer who was born again experiences some wrestling with his or her old nature. Now that old nature, which really had its genesis in Genesis, didn't it? When God said to Adam and Eve, because of sin, the human experience will now contain things I never meant it to contain. There are some struggles we all relate to, right? The struggle to mouth off or punch somebody out or lie or be greedy. And there are some struggles that are more unique that only a minority of us experience, like homosexuality. But good night, it's all fruit from the same tree, isn't it? The sin nature. So these guys said to me, look, we don't expect anything out of you that we don't expect of ourselves. Get into the Word of God. Develop your prayer life. Abide in Christ. Fellowship with us. Be honest with us about your struggles, and we will be honest with you about ours. Seek the will of God and the calling of God in your life, and let's all grow together and become the men of God that we are meant to be. Now, these guys didn't know anything about homosexuality. I, I really don't think they could spell the word. I certainly don't think they would know what to do about it. But they didn't need to be specialist in that. They knew the word of God. They knew how you love a brother who is seeking discipleship and accountability. And this is why I often say, you don't have to have a PhD in psychology or sociology to know how to minister to a homosexual person. Do you know the word of God and do you have the heart of Christ you're in? And you're equipped as they were. Interestingly enough, when I prayed my prayer of repentance, I said, Lord, I have sinned against you. And I know I have the heart of a rebel. And I probably always will. 
You are bigger than my heart. Take a hold of this rebel. Make me obedient. I didn't even think to ask, change me, as in make me straight, give me a wife, etc. But I did find, oddly enough, that as I abided in Christ and stayed in fellowship and grew in grace and sought God's will, the homosexual temptations reduced and became less and less strong. And I started having a desire for a marriage and a family life, but I didn't know how on earth that was going to happen because I really didn't have the kind of a resume that Christian women were looking for, you know? <laughs> but doggone it, if one of them didn't come along, I met her in the choir I had joined. We started talking. I thought she was lovely at first. Then I thought, she's not just lovely, I really like her. And then finally that evolved into, she's not just lovely, she's not just somebody I really like. I want her. I want her. And after about, oh, I think 72 years, I worked up the courage to ask her out. <laughs> On our second date, I told her my whole story. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. We courted for a year and a half. I proposed. We became engaged for another year and a half. And in August of 1987, she became my wife of 34 years now and mother of our two sons. Yeah, look at that. Isn't the bride beautiful? Got no idea who that boy is she's cavorting with up there. She sure looks great. There were, of course, things that facilitated change in me, some critical investments that need to be made, critical investments that include intimacy with God. How does somebody walk away from a life-dominating sin? They must abide in Christ. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you, because as the branch cannot bear fruit, unless it abides in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. Intimacy with God was critical. Alliances were critical. Developing accountability and relationship within the church. So the author of Hebrews said, exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened in your hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. And of course, a lifestyle of stewardship. I love the way Paul puts this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication and that each of you learn, I love this phrasing, to possess your vessel with honor. Now I think I'm finally starting to get that. I don't own my body, but I am the manager. Lack of ownership doesn't mean you can abdicate authority. The owner commissions to the manager the owner's property and says, I am entrusting this to you. Answer to me for the way you manage what I have given you, your passions, your thoughts, your gifting, and so forth. And in that context, I learned something wonderful about my own temptations. They would still come, but I hope I understand now that each temptation is an opportunity for worship. Because when I yield my members to God, as Paul told the Romans to, what am I doing if not worshiping? Just like we did this morning, we yielded our hands, our mouths, our bodies. So every time I feel like doing this and I say, Lord, I love you, I do crave that, but you are what I want. What is that if not an act of worship? And that takes temptation out of the negative and puts it into the positive as a whole part of the sanctification process. Holiness, for goodness sakes, it's not an absence of temptation. It is faithfulness in temptation. 
Now, why does all this matter to us? Well, it matters because my story is terribly common. Millions of women and men are experiencing exactly the same thing. And they are about to make many of the same decisions I made, some of them good, some of them not good. Only today, it's harder than ever to make the right decision because this is not just a time of immorality. You and I are in a season of madness. It is a time of madness. A little boy can say, I think I'm a girl, and it seems every expert on the planet will jump in and say, okay, we will mutilate your body, we will pump drugs into you, we will help you identify with something that your DNA will never identify with, but if you say it, it must be true. And yet, if a young man or woman says, I think I might be gay, can I change? Oh, no! You can't be anything other than what you were created to be. It's madness. And in that time of madness, the church is in great danger. The world has changed its strategy. It used to say, coexist with those crazy Christians. We'll just call them stupid and backwards and archaic, but we won't bother them. Not so today. The world is making a concerted effort to tell the body of Christ what we may or may not say, what we may or may not call sin. And thereby the church is in grave danger of abdicating our role as the light of the world and thereby allowing the world to assume its role as the light of the church. That's the bad news. The good news, there will always be a remnant, always. I should know. We have all that is needed within the body of Christ to receive and to build up those who will come to us out of the same life I came to the church out of. And the body of Christ has the capacity to give them everything the body of Christ gave me. I so love the way the hymn writer Fanny Crosby put it in her hymn, Rescue the Perishing. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart and awakened by kindness, chords that were broken will vibrate once more. They are there, and they will be interrupted, and they will come. God grant that we will always be ready to receive them. Thank you so much for this opportunity. God bless you.